Hi guys, my name's Michael. I'm in my first year of doing public health, and we're going to read the Bible now. Uh, we're going to be opening up to Isaiah chapter 5, verses 7 to 23. It's on the inside cover of your funky bits of paper if you got given one, or it'll be good to open your own Bible if you brought it there, if you brought it as well. I'll give you about five seconds, and we're going to run away. <laughs> Oh, I think we're fantastic. Alrighty. From verse 7. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant plantings. And he looked for justice, but behold bloodshed for righteousness, but behold an outcry. Woe to those who join house to house, who add field to field, until there is no more room, and you are made to dwell alone in the midst of the land. The Lord of hosts has sworn in my hearing... Surely many houses shall be desolate, large and beautiful houses without inhabitant. For ten acres of vineyard shall yield but one bath, and a homer of seed shall yield but an, but an ephah. Uh, woe to those who rise early in the morning, that they may run after strong drink, who tarry late into the evening as wine inflames them. They have lyre and harp, tambourine and flute and wine at their feasts. But they do not regard the deeds of the Lord, or seek to work for his hands. Therefore my people go into exile for the lack of knowledge. Their honoured men go hungry, and their multitude is parched with thirst, uh, with thirst, with thirst <coughs> wine. Therefore Sheol has enlarged its appetite, and opened its mouth beyond measure. And the nobility of Jerusalem and her multitude will go down, the revealers and, her, and he who exalts in her. Man is humbled, and each one is brought low, and the eyes of the haughty are brought low. But the Lord of hosts is exalted in justice, and the holy God shows himself holy in righteousness. Then shall the lamb graze as their pasture, and no man shall eat among the ruins of the rich. Woe to those who draw iniquity with cords of falsehood, who draw sin as with cart ropes, who say, Let him be quick, let him speed his work, that we may see it. Let the counsel of the Holy One of Israel draw near, and let it come, that we may know it. Woe to those who call evil good, and good evil, who put darkness for light, and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet, and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes, and shrewd in their own sight. Woe to those who are heroes at, drink, at drinking wine, and valiant men in mixing strong drink. Woe... Acquit the guilty for a bribe and deprive the innocent of his right. Afternoon, guys. Welcome. It is week 12. <laughs> yeah. In case you weren't aware, thanks, Jono, for reminding us about that as well. Uh, some of us have been in denial. Been in denial for some weeks. <laughs> Do you remember the first week of semester? <laughs> Do you remember that week when all your subjects were brand new and shiny? <laughs> when there was hope. <laughs> uh, but it's like that, isn't it? When you get that fir those first initial assessments, assessment tasks. And you say to yourself, if you've been at uni for a couple of years or a couple of semesters, you say, this time, <laughs> this time I'm going to research properly. No Google. 
uh, no jumping straight into Google's you know, number one hit. This time, I'm going to research, I'm going to be thoughtful and do it properly. I'm going to be organised and I'm going to get good results. I'm going to aim for good results and at least get good results from my work. Week 12 comes along and you're not too worried about results. You're just worried about getting something in. Uh, Google anything. Uh, just go, don't even Google. Just go straight to writemyessayforme.com and I'll hand that in. And whatever comes about, comes about. You ever have that feeling of it's just lack of accomplishment. <laughs> My plans have failed. I just haven't brought about the effort that I've put in hasn't brought about what I've been seeking to bring about. Probably all of us know that to some extent. In this chapter of Isaiah, God experiences the same thing. Does God fail to bring about what he plans? Well, Isaiah 5 says yes. Yeah, you don't have it on the bit that you're looking at, that we read. Oh, we'll jump across that. Does anyone have any questions about Isaiah so far? That's great. Excellent. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to jump across a couple of these. In fact, actually, uh, if, you, uh, if you do have a question uh, during the talk today, I'm going to answer any questions that might come up uh, that have been generated from Isaiah. So you can just stick your hand up and say, oh, hang on, I want to ask about that. But let's jump into this passage. Uh, not the bit that you have, but earlier on, you've only got from verse 7, we see that God is seeking to bring about something. He's seeking to bring about something, but his plans failed. In this chapter, God and Isaiah together are telling this story. It's a parable it's about a vineyard, uh, very popular in, the, in Palestine and Israel throughout history. And indeed, God has done everything he can to plant a vineyard that is going to produce good fruit. And God has done it. But he says in verse 4, we'll pick it up from verse 3, they're involved. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, where he, he has built his vine, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done when I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? I .e. those really sour grapes that you just don't, you know, the little ones that you don't eat in the bottom of the packet. Uh, that's been the produce. God has sought to bring about good fruit, but the people of Judah have only brought about bad fruit. Well, what's this image mean? What's it all about? <coughs> it's about the people of Jerusalem and Judah. Verse 7. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. You look for justice, but behold bloodshed, for righteousness, but behold an outcry. We don't get it in the English, but there's a pun on the justice and bloodshed. They sound the same in Hebrew. <laughs> righteousness and the outcry sound the same. You look for the... For and he got rubbish. <laughs> and the rest of the chapter examines this failure. Is it possible 
that God can fail to bring about his plans. Isaiah 5 says, in the case of Judah and Israel, <coughs> it's failed. Let's have a look at some of those failures. We're doing it under the heading of disaster. You might have picked it up on the way through, the word woe, that three-letter word woe, which you don't come across very often. It's the idea of disaster, of pronouncing, pronouncing uh, that things not only have failed, but that judgment is coming, destruction is coming, disaster is coming. First of all, the disaster of excessive consumption. Real estate disaster in verse 5, uh, chapter uh, 5, verse 8. Woe to those who join house to house, who add field to field, until there is no more room, until you are made to dwell alone in the midst of the land. The Lord of hosts has sworn in my hearing, surely many houses shall be desolate, large and beautiful houses without inhabitant. If you've been with us, you'll know that at this time in Israel's history, Excessive wealth is the thing of living in Judah. It's a very wealthy place. And what goes along with great wealth is <coughs> focusing on real estate and large and elaborate homes. And is no different throughout history to our time today. Real estate greed is destructive. It's destructive of the environment, such that even in Israel's time, joining of house to house and adding field to field over development such that there's no more room in the land and here it's no more room for the poor and those who are without to be able to live they're, they're squeezed out to the very very edges of the society and God says I'm going to make many houses desolate uh, God will act but in a sense, there's a, and you see this coming through in this chapter, there's an inbuilt destruction in the very aim of getting more houses and having more land. There's an inbuilt problem in it, an intrinsic judgment, you could say. Because <coughs> once you've built a big house, what do you do? Well, you have to pay for it. Sorry, what was that? Fill it. You have to fill it. That's right. You have to fill it with stuff. In fact, when people build big houses, they often have the intention of filling it with people. Mm. I don't know if you've ever met anybody who's, who's rich enough to build a big house. People got this big room and we'll run parties in here and there's excessive bedrooms for the, all the people that will stay and it'll be great time and the message of history and to our very day is that people who are rich enough to build large homes are not rich enough to fill them with lots of people because they are working so many hours that their families are tiny and that is the stack of our land that nobody fills them. In fact it's an interesting thing to do is to go for a drive around a neighbourhood where there are lots of mansions during the middle of the day and you'll find that there's no one home. There's no one around. There are, there are cars around. There are servicemen who are coming and service women who are coming to, to run pools and clean and gardens and everything. But the owners are off earning money to afford for the building. 
in these overdeveloped, oversized homes. And it's just the greed and excess coming through. It did back then, but did now. And built into it is this judgment that the place will be so overdeveloped there is no inhabitants left in the land. And that is the story of many of our own suburbs. God says, many of the houses will be desolate. Here's just a warning for any of us. Don't desire large and beautiful houses. Don't desire them. Unless you have a large and beautiful family uh, to fill them with. They're just excess. Which, which They consume power. Uh, you need to fill them with something. It's just, they're just a bad idea. Whether you're a Christian or not, don't give in to that sort of greed. It's just disastrous and damaging. Well, there's also the greed of excess with regard to drinking. Verse 11. Woe to those who rise early in the morning that they may run after strong drink, who tarry late into the evening as wine inflames them. They have lyre and harp, tambourine and flute and wine at their feasts, but they do not regard the deeds of the Lord or see the work of his hands. Now, Isaiah is going to say a lot about alcohol uh, and alcohol consumption in these couple of chapters and into the rest of the book. It's actually interesting how he develops and uses the theme of alcohol. But here we see a picture of overindulgent excess. The problem is not just excessive consumption, but also chasing, pursuing excessive consumption. Woe to you who rise early in the morning to run after strong drink. They're not even waiting till knockoff time at the end of the day. It's get up in the morning and what have I got to do? Well, nothing. I'll just indulge and run after drink. That's how wealthy they are and this is what they're doing with their wealth and the time that they've been given. And God says, you, it says woe, it says disaster will come upon you. And again, in this excess, there's an inbuilt, intrinsic judgment. Run after strong drink and get blotto throughout the day and your life won't be very good. There's an inbuilt judgment in that. But not only that, it, it's just a picture of greed uh, and chasing excess that actually brings damage. Uh, greed has its own built-in judgment. Greed blinds you to what you do have. Uh, it's not really spelt out here exactly like that in these passages, uh, in these verses, but you rise early in the morning to chase after the things that you really desire and fail to recognise what you actually do already have and give thanks for that. Greed blinds you to the great treasures that you already own and already have. Greed blinds you to what is worthwhile in life as it leads you to useless excess. You begin to not be able to discern what is actually worthwhile and you just run after rubbish. And so greed blinds you to the tragedy of your own greed. And rather than grow you as a person, it reduces you to being a consumer, is what greed does. And it, it looks like a thing that's building you up 
as you chase after stuff, as you chase after accomplishment, as you chase after whatever it might be, but it's actually white anting you out such that you become nothing and lesser than what you would be. Greed blinds you to what God wants. Because what happens? It's not just the running after things, uh, the running after uh, wine and having wine at their feasts, but they don't regard the deeds of the Lord. Now, this could be the things that the Lord has done, that they're just worried about whether that's good or bad, or it could be they, they don't regard the things, the work of the Lord, the, the good works that God wants his people to do. Ah, that's stupid. Out with that. Let's chase after excess. So greed has numbed them, blinded them to the things that God actually regards as worthwhile and upbuilding. And so greed blinds you to acting responsibly and for the good of others. They do not regard the deeds of the Lord or see the works of his hands. We'll come back to seeing how that works out in a moment. And so this greed actually is not just intrinsically judging, as in it's damaging, but God says he's actually going to extrinsically, from the outside, bring judgment. You see it there in verse 13. Therefore, my people go into exile for lack of knowledge. Their honoured men go hungry. Their multitude is parched with thirst. Therefore, Sheol has enlarged its appetite and opened its mouth beyond measure. And the nobility of Jerusalem and her multitude will go down. Her revellers and he who exalts in her. And we're going to see in a moment what this form, this judgment on the people of Judah and Israel takes. But do know, this is not just, this sort of judgment is not just an Old Testament type of thing. You know, the Old Testament is where God sends a nation, wipe out his people. God sends a nation, wipe out some more people. And God sends a Then that's what the Old Testament God is like, but in the New Testament God is different. No. Paul writes to the Christians in Colossae, in Colossians chapter 3, verse 5, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them. So the very things that we deal with, the, one, the, the chasing after our desires, fulfilling our desires, whether it's uh, sexual, whether it's impurity, whether it's just being guided by passion or evil desires, coveting. God is going to bring an end to that. The wrath of God is coming, the judgment of God is coming because of those things. So don't have anything to do with them. We'll come back towards the end to see why that is, a, is the good case. But don't be led by desire is really what's being said here. Don't be led just by your appetite because it leads to God's judgment. Put it to death. Rather, be led by God's justice, the good things that God desires, and it will lead to right desires. Well, what about this declaration of judgment? Uh, the declaration that the judgment of God is coming on greed and excess uh, with the neglect of the people is laughable. It's something to ridicule. Uh, it's something to not take seriously. 
uh, you wouldn't try it in your own lecture if you're in the middle of a lecture and you've been taught how to be uh, given to excess and greed you wouldn't jump up and say no, God is going to bring judgment upon that you'd be ridiculed and laughed at particularly what happens to Isaiah here you see there in chapter 5 verse 18 Woe to those who draw iniquity with cords of falsehood, who draw sin as with cart ropes, who say, let him be quick, let him speed his work that we may see it, let the counsel of the Holy One of Israel draw near, and let it come that we may know it. So Isaiah has pronounced this judgment upon the people of Judah, and what's their response? Beauty, bring it on, the Holy One of Israel, let him be quick. What's taken him so long? You, come on, it's been weeks, it's been days, it's been months. Bring it on, we're ready for it. Bring the disaster that you're talking about. Bring, bring it, have a good crack at it. We're ready, is what the response is, i.e. complete and total ridicule of the idea of God bringing judgment. And there's going to be disaster as a result, as the disaster of self-deluded corruption. See in verse 20. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. What's become of the people of Judah is not just <coughs> a ridiculing of the judgment is coming on them because of their excessive consumption and greed and given to desire but they're actually completely done a, a 180 flip of everything in their morality of what is good and what is bad what begins as the desire for perhaps what they originally thought was probably not good greed becomes something that is not so bad because everyone's doing it and so it becomes neutral then it becomes accepted, an accepted way of life. Actually to be celebrated and enjoyed and pursued. And then finally, to be mandated. Such that if you are not chasing after those things, if you are not chasing, what's wrong with you? Are you, is there something deficient about you? You're actually bad. And the good gets labelled evil and evil gets labelled the good. It began with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, if you know that story at all, where God says to Adam and Eve, enjoy everything in the garden, but just don't eat the fruit from this particular tree. And they judge for themselves what is right and wrong and decide that that's a good thing to do, to eat the fruit. And so they have exchanged good for evil. And that's been the story of humanity ever since redefining the terms, rejecting the good of God and calling it evil. You see it in lots of different ways uh, in, our, in our world. You see it in the promotion of abortion. The promotion of abortion, not just the activity of it, but the promotion of it. People who seek to call abortion promoters and profit, profiters, people who profit from it, to account. People who seek to call them to account People who are shining the light on the corrupt market of selling aborted 
fetuses are called evil lawbreakers. So they secretly video uh, conversations that they shouldn't have been secretly videoing. They're evil for shining a light on these things. Or people promoting the opportunity for counselling to someone seeking an abortion are judged as law-breaking trespassers who are oppressing and shaming women and are judged to be damaging a woman's right to control her own body by seeking to create the opportunity for counselling about that decision. While companies promoting terminations and profiting from them are considered to be a normal part of community health services. Has good become evil in that situation? Or the other one that uh, Christians are often derided about and uh, ridiculed about is abstinence in sex and lifelong monogamy. How ridiculous is that? Safe sex has been promoted and practiced for um, decades. Uh, I mean, when I was at uni, being promoted even that long ago. Um, <laughs> Yes, sex existed back in the... <laughs> <laughs> Abstinence and lifelong monogamy has been promoted and ridiculed for its promotion. But the collective determination now is not just that it's a ridiculous thing that some people, uh, maybe some religious people, seem to live by, but the collective determination is now that promoting sexual abstinence is not just out of date, it's actually flawed, ineffective, unscientific, harmful, reinforces gender stereotypes, unethical, and it violates human rights. It's no longer a neutral thing. It's an evil thing. But the casual sexual conquering and use of other people portrayed in Hollywood movies for over 100 years, which have been endlessly critiqued by Christians, is still celebrated. The, use, the casual use of another person and their body. The important thing now that we're clarifying is that they consented at the time. And that's the important thing. That, that papers over the mess of misuse of sex and other people. That papers it and makes it all better. And is actually good. Despite the reality that people will feel used, will feel cheap, will still feel wronged despite the fact that it was all done so beautifully, according to Hollywood. God says, Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. What do we excel in? What do they excel in? Well, they actually excel and do well producing crap, is what the story is here. Verse 22, it continues on. Woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine and valiant men at, drink, at mixing strong drink who acquit the guilty for a bribe and deprive the innocent of right. See, courage and honour and character mean nothing. True heroes are those who are able to drink the other person under the table. The people who can outdo each other in excess. They're the heroes. They are our heroes. To produce what? It produces nothing of any good. 
is stupid. I mean, the very activity is, is stupid. Where it leads is stupid. Uh, it all goes down the toilet uh, very quickly. And I've never met anybody who's been drunk who's the next day has said, oh, I feel so good about actually being <laughs> drunk. Later on, they'll say that, that I'm really looking forward to doing that again. But the results, it's excelling at, at rubbish. But more than that, it's actually doing so such that you don't, you don't do what you should be doing. That the getting drunk, the indulging in wine is, li is linked with <coughs> acquitting the guilty for a bribe and depriving the innocent of their right. Mm -hmm. Those who should be giving their time to actually doing what is right, making right judgments, uh, treating people responsibly, seeing justice done, well, they don't even do that. They're actually more interested in getting down the pub and getting blotto and working out how they'll do that well again today. While the things that they've given, they're supposed to give their responsibility to, they can't even fulfil. And it's actually destructive to the community. And God says, I'm not going to let it happen any longer. I'm going to bring my judgment. Not just the intrinsic judgment that getting drunk brings, but God is going to do something from the outside. He's got judgment planned. Verse 26. You don't have it in front of you. Isaiah says, He will raise a signal for nations far away and whistle for them from the ends of the earth. And behold, quickly, speedily they come. None is weary, none stumbles, none slumbers or slips. Not a waistband is loose, not a sandal strap broken. Their arrows are sharp. All their arrows, oh sorry, all their bows are bent. Their horses' hooves seem like flint, and their wheels like the whirlwind. What you have here is a picture of an army. Whereas Judah and Jerusalem, God's vineyard that he's looking to have as good fruit, produce rubbish, this army that God is whistling for to come from far away, it's the Assyrian army, don't acknowledge God, but look, look how orderly they are. They don't weary, they're, they're not stumbling, no one uh, slumbers or sleeps. They come quickly, they're all dressed in their battle gear, no waistband is hanging out loose, no sandal strap broken. They're a picture of discipline and order. Everything that Judah and Jerusalem is not. But the discipline and order, the righteousness that they're bringing, is to wipe out Jerusalem and Judah. This is the judgment of God, the disaster of God's righteous judgment. And when you consider it, isn't it not actually good to have God's judgment? We think of God's judgment and we think, that's a bad thing. But is it a bad thing when God actually clears away the filth and the rubbish and the crap that his people have made? It is not a good thing to do away with that? Let me go at thinking about, talking about that with your friends. You could even say, one of your friends asks you, say, what were you doing today? What were you up to today? Say, I was in a 
I was in a Bible study, and we were learning uh, about God's judgment against excess and greed. Do you think that's a good idea? Mm. Well, God's concerned about excess and greed. Why is it? Have we been able to deal with it in our world? Have we been able to? No, we just get worse at it, despite all our technology. Wouldn't it be good for God to do something about it? Wouldn't it be good for someone to do something about it? God says he's got a plan. Do you think that's a good idea? That's not a bad idea. Where should he start? You should start where it's really, really bad with the wealthiest people in the world. The richest, most well... God should start there. Where would we go to find them? Why wouldn't God start with you? If that was such a good idea. With us who are indeed the wealthiest people in the world. Would you volunteer to be number one on the list? To make things right in the world. Has God failed? God sought to bring about good fruit. Jerusalem and Israel brought about rubbish. Has God failed? Well, Jesus shows us that he hasn't. Over in John 15, you guys who are doing John's Gospel in your small groups, take note of this chapter. Jesus picks up this image of the vine and he says, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser, straight from Isaiah chapter 4. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit he takes away and every branch that does bear fruit he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Hear what Jesus has to say? Who is the vine? Well, Jerusalem and Israel are not. But no, they're not. Jesus is actually the vine. Jesus is the person in which God is bringing about fruit. How do we bear fruit? Fruit that is pleasing to God. Fruit that God loves. The fruit of generosity. The fruit of righteousness. The fruit of actually caring for our world. The fruit of living for the good of other people. The fruit of bringing about the needs of those who don't have. How, do you, how, do, how does God bring that about? He brings it about through Jesus and his people remaining in Jesus. That's what Jesus says. If you remain in me, you attach yourself, you make your whole life centered about me, then you will bear much fruit. And the idea, I think, here is that of excess. Why chase after excess that just produces rubbish and destroys when in Christ, in Jesus, you can bear fruit that actually is great for the world, is great for people, and will actually be good for you. 
That's how you can bear fruit. That's how you can actually have results that last, even by week 12. Is remain in Jesus. If you're not a believer in Jesus, it's a great opportunity to hear what Jesus says. If you want to make a difference in the world, if you want to have things right, Jesus says, attach yourself to him and abide in him. Notice that righteousness is not a thing that you just dabble in. It's not just a thing where I'll buy ethical clothing for a week uh, or I'll seek to give to the poor. It's, it is those things. It's many, many, many things. It's, it's the whole of life attached to Jesus. The whole of life revolving around him, our desires and our wants to result, revolving around him such that we might be excessive in what we produce. Good fruit for him. I want to pray that we might be able to do that. Father, thank you for the Lord Jesus who fixes up the failure of your people, fixes up our failure to live rightly in this world. Thank you that he did live rightly, does rule rightly from heaven. We pray that we might abide in him, attach ourselves to him, trust in him, that we might indeed bear fruit for you. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to keep praying, and Jesus <coughs> is going to come and lead us. I didn't, get, didn't see any hands for uh, questions, so uh, <laughs> you can grab me afterwards if you do have any others, or, or write them down on that sheet uh, that uh, you've got. But we're going to continue in prayer. Hi everyone, um, my name's Jess, I'm a second year um, creative arts music student and I have the privilege of praying for us today. So if you would pray with me. Dear Lord, help us to live in Christ. Take us away from self-deluded corruption and greed. Help us not to be deceived by sin that is normalised in our society, but remain in Christ, bearing fruit for your kingdom. Thank you that we can gather together and hear your word on campus. Lord, as the end of the semester is coming up, we pray for eyes that look up to you. Help us not to be anxious and worried about assessments and exams, but have your big picture in mind. We pray that we'll glorify you in our approach to this time and be seeking your kingdom always. Lord, thank you for the recent faculty socials and for the opportunity to develop relationships within the faculty. Lord, we pray for MIC and thank you for the many who have registered and pray that students will keep signing up and inviting friends, that they will be encouraged as they hear from God's word about your will and how you guide us. We pray for the staff and the committee, Richard in particular, as they all prepare the content for the seminars, electives and talks. Lord, we thank you for faculty Bible studies. Praise you that the first years who are looking through and memorising two ways to live. We pray that you will give them courage and wisdom as they go out on campus this week to tell people the gospel. We pray for the Christian Union Deacon and we pray for Wednesday walk-up teams that you'd give them the courage to speak about Jesus and that more people would join in. We pray for those who aren't Christians attending events that they would put their trust in Jesus. We pray also for people who don't know you that they would be coming to hear your word. God, thank you that you hear us. 
that you love us and that through your Son we have a reconciled relationship with you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.